All right. Well, I don't know about you, but that was awesome. You know, I just so thankful for our worship team and all the people who lead in our service and for uh, Carrie and Samson uh, just bringing us together at the beginning and for just the opportunity to just have some time to be with the Lord. And I was also struck this morning as we were kind of walking through this early part of the service, praying for Yoman and his uh, family and their church there in Indonesia, hearing our brothers and sisters singing in Spanish just down the, down the hallway of, of how good God is to bind us together as a people and to, to give us a, a genuine, genuine fellowship with people who are so different than us from all different places and even within our own room here that we could experience a sense of communion with God and the opportunity to, to dwell as a family together in his presence. And because ultimately that's really what the Lord has desired to do, that we'd be a temple that, that's like a place for him to dwell in the midst of and we'd experience his power and his work. And so I, I hope you're ready to hear the word this morning. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. And in a minute, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. It is Palm Sunday, and it's, uh, it's an opportunity for us this week uh, to, to really prepare our hearts to celebrate the resurrection. One way as you're turning to Romans 8 that you can do that this week is that we will be having Good Friday gatherings this Friday night. Now, we have a, kind of a small office complex over in Dumfries where we're going to have two gatherings this Friday night where we, we just read uh, passages from the crucifixion, where we remember the meaning of Christ's death for us, where we sing some songs together that just uh, help us really understand what Jesus has purchased for us through his blood and, uh, and have some time to pray together and encourage one another as we do that. And so we, we've set up, because it's a smaller area, we've set up two times at 5 and 7 p.m. where you can sign up to be a part of those times. There's also space for about 10 kids in childcare. And so we're just asking if you want to be a part of that, and I'd love for you to join me on Friday night, that you would just sign up and register to be there. Some of you already saw some of this maybe on social media and have signed up, but you'll get an email that has the link to be able to sign up to join us for those Good Friday gatherings. And I just encourage you this, this week to, uh, to read the Gospels and to dwell in the story of Jesus and to think about the significance of his death as we prepare to celebrate the resurrection. I hope you'll join me on, on Good Friday. Uh, beginning in verse 1 of Romans chapter 8, we've made it to my favorite chapter in our study and my favorite chapter in the Bible. Uh, so I'm excited and we're going we're gonna to spend like five weeks in it, okay? Five weeks, Romans chapter 8. Uh, so let's just read the first eight verses this morning. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds 
on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how clear it is and uh, the richness that you've stored up for us in it. And Lord, today, as we consider these words, we pray that you would give us fresh vision to see our own lives. Lord, to be able to know what it would look like to, to live a life of walking in the Spirit. Lord, empowered by your Spirit. That we would learn, as Paul said in Romans 7, to serve in the new way of the Spirit. Lord, that we might fulfill the purposes for which your Spirit has indwelled your people and your church. Lord, to glorify Christ and draw people into communion with him. And so, Lord, we pray for this, and we exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. I was, uh, I was born in a very, very rural area in northern Pennsylvania, and uh, yesterday I was playing basketball with a couple guys at Stafford Baptist, and Sam Longwell was there, and he also grew up in rural Pennsylvania, and he was, he was trying to tell me how small his uh, high school was. He was like, ah, oh, I was only graduated with like... 67, 70 people in a public school, which is small, right? I mean, if you're here in Dumfries, it's like 250, 500, maybe 800 or something like that in some of the larger schools. And, and, I, and I said, you know, Gelton, Pennsylvania, where I grew up, is so small. Like when I, I went to a public school and graduated with 37 people. This is so small. And, and, you know, when you grow up in a town like that, it's like 1,500 people. And, and by the time that you graduate from high school, you know everybody, right? You know, you, you've, you've been all the places. You've seen everything that there's there to offer. And, and, and for me, uh, you know, when I graduated from high school, I was tired of that place. I was sort of like this, you know, I just want to get out of here. It's, it's boring. There's nothing to do. It's way out of the way. It's 45 minutes from Walmart, you know. I hadn't even heard of Starbucks. And, uh, and, and you know, I just was bored of it. A couple years later, it was around Easter, uh, we went back to visit while I was in college. And my, uh, my then trying not to be my girlfriend, current wife Annie, <laughs> went along. And she saw it with totally different eyes. In fact, she says now, and I didn't know that this then, that when she was there, she realized, I want to marry this guy because I like this town. <laughs> it was picturesque. In the middle of the town, there's this beautiful lake, and the mountains just rise up on the side of it, and the streams flow into it, and the pace is just kind of slow, and it's got this gorgeous little park in the center of the town, and you can just walk around the whole town, and as you're walking, people say hello to you. They might even stop and ask who you are if they don't recognize you. And she said, you know, I realized just in some way that, yeah, I wanted to marry you when I went to Gelton for the first time. And even seeing her, I all of a sudden realized, my hometown's kind of cool. You know, of course I can go fishing whenever I want. 
It's, it is beautiful. And now when I go back there, I see it with a different set of eyes, and it changed the way that I saw everything. And just my relationship with her and her being with me in it changed the way I saw everything else. Now, let me tell you, you think I'm just telling you a story. And you're like, what does this have to do with anything? Well, here's the thing. I, I prayed this morning that God would give some of you fresh eyes to be able to see your life in a new way that would inspire you to bring it before God and live with genuine spirit-filled purpose. And many of you have looked over your life and you have been fighting a battle with sin. You, you've been wrestling with your own desires that, that those same old struggles just feel tired. <laughs> And, and in a way, Paul says our hope for spiritual life isn't so much about just our ability to conjure something up, but for us to begin to walk through our life with a new presence with us, a new presence that, that changes the way that we see everything else and continues to shine a fresh light on what God could do to change us. And I believe today God wants to do that for some of us. He wants, you to give, he wants to give you a fresh look at your life, not because of what, what you can just do to set your mind on something, but because the spirit that dwells within you sees things that you don't yet see. He's got power that you don't possess apart from him. And there's hope that you couldn't have imagined in maybe the discouraged state that you currently find yourself in, the weary state you might be in. And so Paul, as he brings us into Romans chapter 8, he puts all of his confidence for our spiritual growth, our sanctification, our change in, in, in this one thing, that the Spirit is present in us. In fact, we're going to see as we read through Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit is mentioned 19 times. There's only two ideas that are mentioned as much. The, the role of the Holy Spirit in the presence of assurance from God. And the whole chapter is our assurance because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life that God will complete in us what he sets out to start in salvation. And so to, to get us into that, I just want to review real quick what we've been talking about in Romans 7 and then jump down these verses in chapter 8 to see what they show us. But at the end of chapter 7, if you missed it, I think I can help you. Paul looked at the reality of indwelling sin in our lives and the inability of an external law to change how we relate to God and his will inwardly. And, and so much so that Paul, he said at the end, he said, who can save me from this body of death after an honest look at how hard it is for us to bring ourselves on our own to obey God? Who can save me from this body of death? But there was an answer at the end of chapter 7, Jesus Christ can. You see, under the law and without some different kind of relationship to God, Without a new relationship to God, everything he described in Romans 7 is true of us. The inward turmoil of constantly knowing what is good, yet finding ourselves doing the opposite. The condemning feeling that indwelling sin has in us and of, of its pull on us. The weight of the law and its curses, our sense that we're condemned before God and rightly deserve his judgment. 
But as we turn to chapter 8, he's describing this new relationship that we have in Christ, not the one that he says we would have if we were left to ourselves under the law. And he says we actually have an entirely new relationship that God has offered to us and God is, is producing in us. And he's inviting us now to turn from, from, from our old way of thinking about what it looks like to relate to God, to embrace totally what God is producing in us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he goes into detail describing that here. And so as we turn to chapter 8, he's describing a new relationship that we have in Christ if we've come to trust him by faith. And this new relationship comes with a new way of life, he told us in Romans chapter 6. And he's already mentioned for us several times in recent chapters. Listen to Romans 7, 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. And all along, we've been wanting him to say, tell us what you mean, right? Like, if you're listening to Romans 8 or you're reading along, you're like, okay, well, okay, if I'm free from the law, how do I serve in this new way of the Spirit? What does the new way of the Spirit even mean? How, what, how does that help me and not in the old way of the written code? Well, beginning in verse 8, Paul describes our new, new, or chapter 8, Paul describes our new relationship to God as an indwelling of the Holy Spirit that gives spiritual reality to what is promised to us in Jesus. So much so that he mentions the Spirit 19 times in Romans 8. So, so here's our main point this morning. It's going to be up here on the screen. And, and if I were to summarize what we're going to see in Romans chapter 8. You got slides in there? No slides? Oh, you know the internet. We load them up at home. They're supposed to show up. It's not up there. You're just going to have to trust me. <laughs> I'm going to have to slow down. I can't talk as fast today. All right. Well, here's the main point. The Holy Spirit gives life to the new relationship we have with God through Jesus Christ. Now, let me say that again. The presence of the Holy Spirit in us, given to us by God, actually gives life and vitality. That's what I mean when I say gives life. It, it sort of brings a reality to this new relationship. It's not just a relationship we have with God in theory, but one in which the Holy Spirit makes it alive and real in us, where we experience this relationship with God producing something in us. The Holy Spirit gives life to the new relationship we have with God through Jesus Christ. Well, to really understand this, Paul is, is actually teaching us a concept that the Old Testament promised. And so before we can really look at the text closely, I need to introduce you to some Old Testament backgrounds. Now, I don't know how often you read the Old Testament, but, but the more you read it, the, re the more you realize that it all brings, brings us to this point of seeing how weak the law was to change Israel and God promising a new covenant that would form a new relationship. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, that's what it means, promises a new covenant that would be more effective than the one that the Israelites were gathered around as a nation. He says, that, that old covenant, which they broke, I'm going to do a new work. There's going to be a new relationship. So there's this emphasis on this new kind of relationship. Well, where do we hear that? Well, let me give you a couple examples in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Now, I'm going I'm to read some of that. You, you don't need to turn there, but you could look and just, this is what it says. Behold, the days are coming. Now, now Jeremiah's writing to a people who have totally rejected God. Israelites who had the law but couldn't bring themselves to accomplish it. And he says this, 
Behold, the days are coming. He's looking out into the future. Declares the Lord winner, when I will their make iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's the kind of relationship I'm going to give them. Well, it's not just there, though. Ezekiel chapter 11, another prophet, during about the same time, he describes it and looks forward to it in the same way. And he says, he says there, this is God's promise. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I'm going to, instead of giving a law, the external to them, I'm going to place a new spirit within them. I will remove the heart of stone. And he gives us this picture that, that there's this problem of this stiff stony heart toward God, a deadness. I will remove the heart of stone and I will give them a heart of flesh. Sensitivity, life. The difference between stone and flesh is that one's alive and one's not. I'm gonna gonna give them, I'm gonna make them alive inwardly, spiritually in this new relationship that they can have. So that they will walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. I'm going to do a work in them that will cause them to desire obedience, to walk in obedience. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Now that explains why in Luke chapter 22, when Jesus is there with his disciples before his crucifixion, when he wants them to understand what's going to happen as he is crucified on the cross... He uses this Passover meal to say, these things really are about me. Listen to the way he describes it. He's there with his disciples at the Passover where they would eat the bread as God's provision for their sustained life. And they would, they would drink the cup representing the blood of sacrifice that God has used to atone and cover their sin. Just like they put the blood on their doorpost and, and, the, and the judgment passed over them when they were in Egypt. So, so he says, but Jesus says, all of that was pointing to me. All of that was just so you would understand this new relationship that I was going to give you. Luke 22, 19 to 20, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. And listen, do this in remembrance of me, and likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So that covenant, that promise that we just talked about, he says, he says this is what's being accomplished in me and is being offered to you as this new relationship. So new covenant promised in the Old Testament. Now Paul is saying, this is what the gospel brings to us. It establishes this kind of new relationship with God. That's why I would describe here that the, the Holy Spirit then, then, then is the bond of that new relationship. He's the one who comes and gives us the heart of flesh and dwells with us. So we experience the, 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 the presence of God in our life and then empowers us to desire obedience. This is what the ministry of the Holy Spirit does. And Paul has already shown us that apart from that happening in us, we'll just be losing game religious law keepers. (laughs) Never able to bring ourselves to desire what God desires. So as we look at Romans 8 now, and just some of the specifics of the passage, that helps us. The apostle Paul describes this new relationship by describing essentially what God would do in the new covenant that he had promised and saying, we have it now. 
We don't, we don't gather, find communion with God in some other way. It's, it's in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, his broken body and his shed blood has now made a new relationship with God. And now he wants us to have confidence in that relationship and understand what it means. And, and so he's going to describe it here. So let's just see the three ways that he does it in this passage. First of all, verse 1, he makes a de- declaration about the new relationship. So now as we think about this new relationship you can have with God through Jesus Christ, he makes a bold declaration. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice what Paul, I, I want you to notice in the passage and in the chapter, Paul says the most powerful and meaningful thing for us at the very beginning. It's actually a rhetorical way of him, him helping us go, oh, I want to know more about a relationship like that. Because your most primary concern in life, honestly, is, is proving yourself to not be under condemnation. You may not realize that, but we spend all of our life trying to prove that we have measured up or that we couldn't be condemned by someone else. And then ultimately, internally, if we think about God, we spend all of our time saying, wondering, Does, is God pleased with me? Am I okay? Am I all right with God? And if, if you haven't thought about spiritual things right, all, all that much, I bet if you're here today, even if you're not a Christian, the question is, what does God think of me? How is that relationship? It's pretty easy to consider, and, and, and we're kind of troubled by it. But notice Paul, up front, he actually says this new relationship, what a bold declaration. Now, no condemnation. Now, in the text, let me just explain uh, a little bit here. I want you to notice he says the clearest thing and most powerful thing for us about this relationship up front. It's six words in our English translation. There is, therefore, now no condemnation. It's in Greek, which the New Testament was written in, it's four words. It's like he's wanting to exclaim it. No condemnation now. Like, this is the relationship right now for you. It almost feels like a sales pitch, to be honest, but it's not that lacking in substance. It's just, let's get it out there. Like, why should you stop? Listen to what I'm going to talk about. You know, think about what I'm going to say. Because right now, the truth is, a relationship with God is available to you where that is characterized by there being no condemnation. Now, is that in the future at some point? Is that when I've gotten better? Is that when I've cleaned myself up? When I feel mature? No, now. Right now. And so he says this up front. It's, it, it's amazing. He's, in fact, I would argue that it's so simple that people can hardly believe it and have tried to make it complex ever since. We go, right, well, certainly God can't do that. He can't mean like people who aren't living really spiritually mature lives, Right? You know, me with my life and some of the things that I've been up to. We immediately, we got, we got to put ourselves to, it's, it's so shocking that God would have this disposition to us. That we automatically start trying to explain it away and undermine it and caveat it. And Paul doesn't let us do that. That's why he uses four words. Because then there's no caveats. It's like, really, now, no condemnation. Paul won't allow it in his writing style. He makes the most outrageous statement, the simplest and most clear. So, so, so why does that matter? I want you to do something right now. 
Just right now where you're at. I'm not gonna make you do anything weird or stand up. I know some of you are like, oh no, is this one of those churches where we gotta do? <laughs> put yourself before the Lord. Right now. Just put yourself before the Lord. There you are right now, just you and God. How are things? What do you feel? What's your sense of how he feels about you? Like really, if you, if you take a serious look at your life and your performance, now you're in the room with a holy God who gave you life and purpose and, and right now you're, you're seeing him face to face. What do you believe about his disposition towards you? What, what, what does he think towards you? At the core of the relationship right there, what do you sense are God's thoughts towards you? We feel uncertainty. We feel vulnerable, exposed, maybe unworthy. And Paul says, those in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. It, it's almost hard to believe. But he says, if we've understood the gospel... That right now when you see God, it, it changes the way you see God. The way you see his relationship to you. And, and here's why this matters. Listen, listen. That, that you would believe that. <laughs> that you would believe that matters so much for your growth. We think of it as just, oh good, I'm off the hook for the past. But, but the reason, this is in the midst of him wanting us to be a people who grow spiritually. And the first thing he does is he creates safety. <laughs> Total, utter safety. This matters as we look at the messy experience of sanctification, of personal growth, of spiritual development and maturity and what it takes in, in just our lives. We do so on the assurance of our justification. So as we've been talking about now, what does it look like for us to live faithfully in Christ? What we need to understand before we even bother to charge into the mess of what will it look like for my life to be reordered around God's will? What Paul wants to make sure of is that we do that work on the assurance and safety of God's acceptance and pardon. Are you, are you tracking with me? Here's what that means. The key to your spiritual growth is an environment of safety. That until you feel safe from the punishment that your sin deserves, from the shame that your past decisions carry with them, even for you, from any sense of guilt before God, until you feel safe, you won't actually expose the things that need to really be changed. Some of you, that's where you're at. Listen, listen, you, you, you're wondering why the pace of your spiritual growth is so slow. Well, it's because you've been after it in the flesh, in discipline, but you haven't dealt with how you see God. You haven't dealt with the fact that, that, that God desires, like a good father, to create a place of safety where now we can really talk about the things that are below the surface. Now we can talk about the things that are really broken, the things that you don't want to say, the things that you don't want to admit, the, the areas where you don't want to look. And you can do so with honesty and safety because right now there's no condemnation before God. It's a new relationship. That's, that's totally different than most people think when they think about spirituality and religion, isn't it? 
Spirituality and religion is a place where we experience judgment, (laughs) condemnation. I don't want to show who I am. Most churches, and I've spent tons of time uh, talking to people in other churches and to pastors, most churches are places where people wouldn't dare to be honest about their sin. When we have a God who says there's no condemnation. And so that means we have to go about the work of believing that God creates that kind of spiritual safety and then cultivating it for one another or else we will never partner together in our growth in the mess that is necessary. So until you get this, you really haven't understood the gospel and you will constantly be trying to perform and posture to earn God's approval and you'll never admit when you don't, when you fail in your actions And Paul knows, and I've seen this as a pastor, as a parent, if you want to get the real issues and help someone grow, you have to make it safe for sinners to come out of hiding. So he says, now, no condemnation. Well, then next, Paul explains how this is possible. (laughs) Because eventually people are going to be like, wait a minute, how could that be? How could it be that me, knowing myself, knowing what we saw in Romans 7 of the truth of, of the reality of indwelling sin, how could it be that there's no condemnation? Well, he he shows us, as he says, for the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So first he proclaims this bold thing about this new relationship, that there's no condemnation, and then he sets himself on the task of explaining how it can be. And that's what he does in verses 2 through 4. How is it possible that God has brought us into this relationship of no condemnation? Well, let, let me just walk through it. It says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So I want you to notice a few things about this new relationship as he explains it. First, he contrasts the old relationship and the new relationship. He makes a contrast between them. So to get to the dynamics of how Christ's saving work is applied to us, we have this contrast. Under the old relationship, he says, you have the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death versus the law of spirit of life, right? This is what he's saying. Now let me me help get us inside that. Under the old relationship, this law of sin and death, what is this law of sin and death that he's talking about? Well, it summarizes an idea that the Mosaic law points to in the Old Testament. The soul that sins shall die. And it summarizes what Paul just described in Romans chapter 7, that sin in reality kills what it touches. It makes us spiritually dead towards God. That indwelling sin has meant that even when we know what is right, right, even when we know what is good, we find ourselves more often than not doing the opposite. That's spiritual death. That's a, he's saying, look, we're dead, <laughs> The law of sin and death is not only just sort of pictured for us in the Mosaic Covenant that says the soul that sins shall die, but when we look inside ourselves, we see that sin that dwells in us is killed, our desire for God, our power to do what is good. We don't live from a place of, uh, of real spiritual power and clarity and moral goodness, but we're constantly fighting against the real desires that we have <laughs> because we're dead. And so he says, this law of sin and death, like when we engage in sin, it kills things in us and takes us captive. It's powerful. And so this is what he means about the law of sin and death. And he's described it in chapter 7 in powerful ways. We can recognize it in its power. 
But he says something has happened. He says that in contrast to that, something new has taken place, that the law of spirit, of the spirit of life, has set us free from it. Something, so, so he sees a new power at work in us, where, where sin's power had brought death. He says there's actually something new that God has done in this new relationship that overcomes it and sets us free from the, 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 the cycle of sin and death. And so the law of the spirit of life is this. I'll just kind of try to describe it for you. It's the truth that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom and there is life. That where the spirit dwells, things that have been dead can be made alive. That the spirit can speak into the void and create things that weren't there. That the spirit of God is the spirit that hovered over the waters in creation and now is dwelling in us and can give us new birth. Where we died spiritually, Jesus actually says to Nicodemus, you're a teacher and you don't understand these truths, that you must be born again. Well, the spirit is the spirit of life that gives new birth internally to us where we have been dead so we can be alive to God. And so what happens is Christ gives us access to being filled with that spirit and that spirit generates. It's called, he's a generative spirit. He's able to make new things. So that means you in your life can experience new things towards God because the spirit of God makes them alive in you. And he calls this the law of the spirit of life. Where the spirit is, he does that sort of thing. He gives new birth. So the Bible calls it being born again. Jesus says to Nicodemus, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. But you must be born again. He goes on in John chapter 3 to say, born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Titus chapter 3, verses 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us, by the washing of regeneration, regeneration means new birth, and the renewing work of the Holy Spirit, whom he has poured out on us richly in Christ Jesus. So, so what happens when we come to faith in Christ is that a new covenant, a new agreement with God has been made between Jesus, our representative, and God the Father where our sin has been paid for such that God says, I'll dwell in that person. And he gives us the Holy Spirit to make us new. And, and what Paul says here, and he contrasts it, he says, he says, the law of the spirit of life has now set you free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is not your guarantee. There's something else that can overcome it. There's something else that has overcome it. This may be a weak illustration, but we all remember the idea of Hellenization from world history. Yeah. During the time of Alexander the Great, as the Greek Empire expanded into new places, it was obvious that telling conquered people to just live out a new cultural way of life would have really little impact. And, and so instead, the Greeks would leave a core population, right, to establish, they would leave a core of population to establish new ideas and culture and patterns of life and government that would win the people to a whole new way of life and model it for them. And it was the presence of that new group of people that they believed would overcome the changes that would need to take place. And to a greater degree and with greater power, God has sent his spirit to take up residence with us so that we might know God's life, so that we might have present with us not just some people to create a culture, but the spirit who can give life to overcome the trajectory of sin and death that was already at work in us. 
And so God sent his spirit to take up residence with us. And so we see the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. He contrasts this old relationship with the new relationship. But he also continues to show why the new relationship was necessary. Verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Now we've seen this in Romans, but we saw it last week. Here he is simply reminding us of what has been taught so far, that the law could act externally but couldn't transform our hearts, couldn't change us inwardly. It could not produce an inward change and reverse the effects of sin in our life. And so it could not overcome the law of sin and death. And and so he says, but God did what that law couldn't do. What did he do? Well, to further show us this new relationship, he connects the new relationship to the life and death of Jesus. I've kind of explained this already, but it's all, as you see, in Christ Jesus. Notice in verse 1, he uses the phrase, in Christ Jesus. In verse 2, he uses the phrase, in Christ Jesus. And and, and what he's saying is, is as we are united to Christ, these benefits come to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. So salvation is really about us by faith being united to the one who accomplishes it and then being indwelt by his spirit for it to be made real in our life. What does it mean to have this new relationship? Well, he connects it to the life and death of Jesus Christ. He he describes it this way. He says, by sending his son, he's accomplished this. In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. There's a lot loaded into this phrase, but here's the rest of the law of the spirit of life. Uh, this is what, what he wants us to see. The spirit, of, the spirit is a uniting spirit. The Holy Spirit creates a connection between us and Christ. It, it creates a union. We, two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that it was described in marital terms, that, that, that a husband and a wife become one unit in the union of marriage, and they're seen now as a singular thing and not just separate people. We talked about how that is practical reality, and that Ephesians 5 tells us that that's an example that is intended to show us how God saves us. He saves us by creating a union where two people or multiple are in, in this relationship and seen there as one thing. And that what happens is the Holy Spirit, the law of the spirit of life is is bound us to Christ such that we are united to Christ and God sees us as belonging to him and we're in Christ Jesus. He takes the life that that is characterized just by by what you have done and what you've accomplished. He puts it in Christ and, and, and there's so much language in the Bible trying to describe this. He robes us in Christ's righteousness. He wraps us in the obedience of Jesus. Jesus bears our sin, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 21, that, that he becomes sin for us in this union, that our sin is transferred to him. And so in this union, we bring all of our stuff and he brings all of his and God looks at them together and he says, oh, sin has actually been paid for in the flesh. The law has been fulfilled. The righteous requirement that, that a death would happen for the sake of sin happens in Jesus Christ. And that's a death for Christ on our behalf. And because we're united to him by faith, it's happened for us. This is how he can say no condemnation because Jesus paid for it. This is how he can, he, he can, he can fill us because Jesus has atoned for us such that God says, I'll take up residence in them. We're united to the work of Christ. On our behalf. 
And then he clarifies the vision for this new relationship. Why? Why did God do all this? Why did he do all of this? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, So listen, here we are in Christ. The Holy Spirit connects us to his bearing of our punishment. He's present to give life to what sin has killed in us. The justice of the law fulfilled. And now God is at work by the Spirit in us to fulfill the heart of the law practically by the life-giving power of the Spirit. God did this so that, so that practically in you and me we could participate in a new way of life produced by the Holy Spirit where the intention of the law, where we would love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves would be fulfilled in us. So far from just saying no condemnation so that we can go live a life separate from him, he gave us his spirit so we would live a life in communion with him, a life united to him. So that the the, the original intent for the law, which Jesus summarizes by saying the law is, all the law and the prophets are fulfilled in these two things, that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves, would actually practically be produced, he doesn't say for us, but in us. So he says spiritual maturity is aimed at the spirit producing in us this kind of life. And it only happens as we come to faith in Christ. It only happens through this relationship of genuine connection and communion with God that the Spirit establishes in us and then brings forth fruit. And that we're actually to attend to that relationship of communing with God through the power of His Holy Spirit as we look at our life. That our whole life then becomes a setting of our mind on the things of the Spirit as He as He. he peers through our lives as we look at the way that he wants to order our lives we we attend to the holy spirit's movement in us as it brings the word of god to life in us and and we begin to submit ourselves to it we begin to pattern ourselves that we walk with the spirit who produces that kind of life and we set our minds on it and so that's kind of the last thing he says the third the third thing is that he points to a distinction In this new relationship. Look at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. He continues to go on in verse 7 and 8 to describe why we shouldn't set our minds on the flesh, what it reaps after saying all of those things. But, but, But here's where I want us to land today. Here's what I, what I think is so important. What he describes here about what we set our mind on, it serves us in two particular ways for application. First of all, to examine ourselves. You know, you know immediately when we say that, we go, oh, to live the spiritual life, I need to set my mind on the things of the spirit. Okay, great. I've got to figure out how to do that. I'm going to need some details, right? And uh, I need to learn to do that. But actually... He, He's not saying, go do this yet. He's going to say that. But first he's saying, have a look at your life. Because where the Spirit of God is, where he's taken up residence, there's a new thing happening in that person. 
If you've come to genuine faith in Christ, what you'll see is a new spirit-produced setting of our mind on the things that matter to him. So before we run, run off and say, oh, let's get to work now and, and order our lives, what he's actually saying is this has a reality to it. It's not just theoretical, like, oh, I said a prayer one day, or I, you know, yeah, I, I, I want to follow God. No, he's saying, you know, like a real, when we've really gotten it and we've come and brought our life before him, we said, I, I'm tired of living in sin and to do that, and we put our faith in Jesus, God does this in us. And now we can look and ask the question, do I see in any way the production of this spirit-given new life in me? I think it's so critical that you would ask yourself this. Like, you might feel like it's true that there's no condemnation for you, and it's not true. You're not in Christ Jesus. The, the, you can't see that God has overcome the law of sin and death in your life in any manner to produce new affections, new desires given by the Spirit. And so when you look, you, go, you have to ask the question, I, I don't really ever think about spiritual things. Like, left to myself, like I don't set my mind on the things of the Spirit at all. And he would say, you know, perhaps you ought to go back to the root and ask, have I ever really come and surrendered my life to Christ? Has there been a turning to God? Notice he's not saying you would have everything wrapped up, you've not sinned this week, you haven't, you're not totally, but, but where you set your mind. Is there a drawing of your mind to the things of God, to, the, to spiritual life, to maturity? Is it, is it growing up in you? And where that's absent it's most likely the Spirit is also absent because the Spirit gives life. And so, listen, the reality and clarity of your spiritual life before God is the most important thing you could consider today. Not to run through and say, okay, well, I'll get the work proven to God that I'm saved. Like some of you might just need to come before God and confess your sin and say, Lord, this isn't me at all. This hasn't been me at all, and today I want it to be true of me. Lord, I believe, I trust what Jesus has done. Lord, would you apply it to me? Would you pour your spirit into my life so that I might be confident that I'm alive? Make me new. You can change everything. Take it. That's where some, some of you need to have for the first time in your life that moment of spiritual clarity where you surrender that to the Lord and let him do his work in you to produce real life. Otherwise, all of the things that we've been saying about no condemnation, uh, about power for real growth and change, they don't belong to you because the Spirit of God doesn't dwell in you. You're not united to the work that Jesus has done in paying for sin on the cross. You're still in your sin and responsible for them before God. But today, that can change as you call on the name of the Lord and receive spiritual life and hope through faith in Jesus Christ. And I, I would encourage you, examine yourself. Give serious consideration to it so that, so that you don't miss out on what Jesus shed his blood to offer to you. And then when we understand that, we can begin to think, how do we strategize to, to set our minds together on Christ? to set our minds together on the Spirit of God. Before I pray for us, I, just, I, I thought of these three ways this morning 
First, I think we can address the obvious desires of the flesh with clarity. If we take these words seriously, now I can address the things that are broken in my life with a lot of clarity. In most of our lives, there are some points or areas of our lives where what is right and what God instructs is at odds with our current practice and confession. You may be here and you say, I know I'm a Christian. I can see there's a desire for that, but there's some obvious part of my life that I've not addressed. There's an obvious part of my life that hasn't been submitted to the Spirit of God where I don't set my mind on the Spirit in regards to that area. I've just been comfortable living contrary to God's instruction. Well, now we have clarity. We can say, what do we do in that area? Well, we want to trust this God who says there's no condemnation and He wants to bring life and peace, not death to our lives. And we submit ourselves. We, We set our mind on what the Spirit cares about and we begin to work our way towards that and let the Spirit produce new thoughts and life in us in regards to that area. But we resolve to present ourselves to God. We address the obvious desires of the flesh with clarity. Second, we address areas of sin with confessional community. Don't just determine to address things in your life individually. Find godly, wise Christians who know what it is like to overcome sin and confess your sin. Have them pray for you that the Spirit's work would be strong in you, strategize with you, comfort you, encourage you, understand you, help you see what is really going on. I think in some way, and I know this is challenging, but in some way we will find it easier to believe that God's condemnation doesn't rest on us when we learn to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another it's actually what happens then is we can remind one another of the gospel and experience in tangible ways the reminder from other believers who who didn't bring us into into judgment didn't bring us into condemnation that means we've got to create if you're mature here and you consider yourself spiritually mature in the life of this body you've got to create space for other people to experience that no condemnation safety around you and begin to remind them of the gospel so that then we can work on the things that are broken we can pray for one another and others can experience trust growing trust and not fear of condemnation in the midst of the church Churches are places where people fear condemnation. Churches are places where I fear condemnation. So I know you do. And honestly, I'll be honest, and this is a good one. Like, I believe in what God's doing here. And so many people have seen God work through this as they've confessed and been open about their sin with others and they've prayed together and they've, they've made strides and the Spirit's given life and there's been change and transformation and that's awesome. But other times it's, it's hard to know whether I can trust the people I'm sitting around to tell them about what's going on. Do they believe the gospel deep enough they can hear my sin and remind me of the goodness of Christ? Or they respond with shock and disappointment. We've got to... We've got to create this kind of community. And as we get to the Lord's Supper, we can address our areas of sin with confidence in God. God is faithful and patient with us. He's removed our condemnation, given us the presence of the Holy Spirit. Though we may be discouraged, His love never fails. We are impatient with our progress. He knows the depth of our need. For us to remain encouraged, we must trust the goodness of God and His wisdom. We're told His spiritual work in us is aimed at producing life and peace, not undermining our genuine joy. If you're convinced, listen, if you are convinced that God's work in your life, the Spirit's direction in your life is aimed at undermining your ultimate joy, you will find obedience to Him laborious. But that's not what we see here from Paul. 
God is calling us forward to something more, to, to a life characterized by life and peace, to life itself, to peace in the midst of chaos. As we attune our life to his purposes in us, we grow in possession of this promised life of peace. It becomes our reality day by day as we walk together because God is trustworthy and the gospel reminds us of it. And so today as we take the bread and the cup, in a moment, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to sing. We're going to prepare to take the Lord's Supper. That broken bread reminds us that God desires to feed us and give us sustenance that leads to life. That shed blood reminds us that we have no condemnation that remains because Jesus' blood has paid the penalty for our sin. Our lives are covered, and now we can come before God in honesty, and we can, we can celebrate, we can give thanks, and we can confess our sin, and we can devote ourselves freshly to obedience. So let's have a moment where we respond to God about that. I'm going to invite our band to, to come up and prepare to lead us. I'm going to pray for us. And during our time of taking the elements, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, listen, we, we invite you to rejoice in this, but let's, in the preparation of taking the bread and the cup, let's go before the Lord and let's respond in the ways that he's pointed out to us in our life. Confess sin. Devote ourselves to setting our minds on spiritual things. For some of us, responding to this good news of the gospel for the first time in our life, calling on salvation, calling on Christ for salvation through faith. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we thank you for today. We, we pray that your spirit would enliven the truths of your word to, to do its work in us that we might be filled with the substance of your life, that our lives would overflow with your work and presence. Lord, you'd produce in us new desire, new purpose, new hope, or that we would be a people who rest firmly in your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.